Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Again, I'm going to apologize for a little ambient noise today. I'm not sure how much is coming through the microphone, but we do have some people here working on construction, both upstairs and downstairs, and occasionally the power tools or whatever make some noises. So I hope it's not too disruptive. Did want to give out a little disclaimer for any background noise and also to express real gratitude that we have been able to continue the process of recovery (laughs) and completion. So I am grateful that there is some forward movement here. It's going to be quite the long journey, but we're seeing some progress. I wanted to share this. I got an email from Michelle Hanberg, who is an expert in eating disorders. So please listen carefully. If you have an eating disorder or know someone or have someone in your family with an eating disorder, this is good information. And I really appreciate Michelle reaching out with this. Let me just read what she said about fasting and eating disorders. So thanks for sending this, Michelle. Here we go. As a mom with over a decade of experience with eating disorders, and as someone who regularly attends both U.S. and international professional eating disorder conferences, and as someone who is extremely up to date on the research, as she is one of the top peer mentors in the U.S. for families where a loved one has an eating disorder, please suggest that people with eating disorders ask their doctors or ED providers about fasting. So this is a really important update and correction to what I suggested before when I talked about ED and fasting. So I think that's really wise. Talk to your doctors, especially your ED treatment specialists. She goes on and says, or perhaps suggest that they find something other than food to fast from. And I really like that suggestion. There are other ways to fast. And we've talked about a little of that in the past. But for instance, remember when President Nelson asked our young women to fast from social media. So perhaps there is something else that thoughtfully and prayerfully could be considered as an offering during fast day. And then some additional information here, which is very useful. It is medically unsafe for a person with a history of eating disorders to ever fast for food, and that is for life. A person with any history of eating disorders, with perhaps an exception for certain forms of ARFID, and that acronym stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So a person with any history of eating disorders... And there are maybe a few people with exceptions for that, but again, should be talking to their medical providers, can never, ever safely fast from food. To remain in recovery, the person with ED must eat by the clock, regardless of hunger for life. The lack of consistent calories is what activates or reactivates the eating disorder in the brain of the person with ED. Fasting for even one meal can be enough to reactivate it in someone who may have been well for years. This includes bulimia, as with all eating disorders that are known to involve some form of calorie or food restriction. So again, thank you very much to Michelle for sending that in. Sounds like she has a lot of expertise and a lot of experience in this, and I appreciate her letting me know. So scratch the idea before of fasting. Let's just not go there. Talk to your medical professional and your caregivers, particularly those with expertise in eating disorders, and let's get that safely done. Thanks again, Michelle. So let's talk about the book of James today. This is a marvelous little epistle, and I think it's wonderful to take some time today and try to maybe increase our enjoyment a little bit of these just simple five chapters that are in this small epistle. Now, let's just start with who James is, the author of this book. And as it says in James chapter 1, verse 1, he announces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So he's speaking to a broad audience. He wants to speak to everyone who could come and hear the gospel word. So he's 
thinking kind of latter days, right? Because he knows that at this time, the 12 tribes are scattered. There's already been the diaspora where they were scattered throughout the northern countries and then the southern kingdom, the Jews taken into captivity. So if he's speaking to all the tribes, this is kind of last day's stuff that he was aware of and had seen. It's kind of exciting because we can see how pivotal his message to our times has been in the history of the world and in each of our lives. Okay, Christian tradition, and this is from the church website under James, so it's good information right there. Christian tradition has held that this James, like Jude, is one of the sons of Joseph and Mary, and hence the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So one of the sons of Joseph and Mary not a full biological brother with Christ, but a half-brother and would have grown up with him. So let's continue in this introduction to James. The fact that James is mentioned first in the list of Jesus's brothers in Matthew chapter 13 may indicate that he was the oldest of the half-brothers. Like the Lord's other half-brothers, James did not initially become a disciple of Jesus. However, after Jesus was resurrected, James was one of the individuals to whom Christ appeared as a resurrected being, and that's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. Later, James becomes an apostle and, according to early Christian writers, the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. As a leader in the church, he played a prominent role in the council held in Jerusalem that's mentioned in Acts 15. His influence in the church was no doubt strengthened by his kinship to Christ Yet James shows humility in introducing himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as a servant of the Lord. So that's kind of touching. Now it is unknown exactly when James wrote this letter. Since James lived in Jerusalem and watched over the affairs of the church there, he likely wrote his epistle from that area. And also because he did not mention the Jerusalem conference, which happened at about A.D. 50, that could indicate that the letter was written before the Jerusalem conference took place. If that's true, then it is one of the first chronological epistles that we have in the New Testament, which is also kind of an interesting little bit of trivia. I thought this next part was also interesting. The general epistle of James has sometimes been classified as wisdom literature, similar to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. So think about it as you read through James this week and study it. Are we picking up that feeling that there's wisdom literature here, that there's a lot of talking and writing on James' part about just good, solid principles by which to live our lives, by which to correct our course if we go astray? The text of the letter consists of short explanations of principles for Christian living. In addition, there are close parallels between the Savior's Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5-7, through and the words of James. And I think you will hear some of the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, certainly these principles taught by the Lord himself, emphasized here again in James. Some similar themes include, and now I'm going to just list some of those because I thought it is kind of interesting to see the scope with which James offers counsel and advice more than advice. It's spiritual counsel that he is making in this important letter to all the saints and all the 12 tribes who might ever read them. That's us. So hopefully we're listening with that in mind. So some, not all of the themes are listed here, but some similar themes from the Sermon on the Mount include enduring persecution, becoming perfect or spiritually mature, asking God, doing the will of God, loving others, knowing good and evil by their fruits, being a peacemaker and not swearing oaths. All of those are things that are mentioned by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's nice to consider this as sort of wisdom literature. Now, there are a lot of other messages here that are really powerful. We're only going to touch on three of them. I think it's three that I have on my list here. Let's see if I'm counting correctly. The first thing we have to talk about is James 1.5. This is, of course, the, you know, scripture that sparked the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in these latter days and for the dispensation of the fullness of time. This is extraordinary. This is extraordinary that this one verse in the New Testament written by the brother of Christ, all those years, 1700 years, give or take, prior to Joseph Smith pondering 
on this verse. Those words were written by an inspired leader in the church and that this slept, so to speak, this great nugget of truth seemed to escape notice to a large extent from so many others until the time was right, until the apostasy had spent itself, the restoration or the the reformation, the Protestant reformation had begun, the United States had been found and the revolution had happened, we had our founding documents, all those things which prescribed religious liberty. And I've said this before, but remember, even with all those important things in place, even with a country that was supposed to support religious liberty, Joseph Smith only made it to the age of 38. The point being, it did have to happen here. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I hear people say like, well, restoration could have happened anywhere. No, this land was prepared with that in mind. Because Joseph Smith never would have made it 38 years in any other country where there wasn't religious freedom. There were serious restrictions on people's belief and certainly the things that they could say about God or about Scripture or about the Bible. And it's for that reason that so many of the Protestant reformers who were trying to open up people's minds to understand what the Bible spoke separate from what was being taught by the leaders of the church, mostly the Catholic Church and then later the Church of England, that these Protestant reformers, many of them, gave their lives. They would not deny what they were seeing that was incongruous in the teachings of the priests and the actual word of the Bible. And for that reason, or for trying to make it more available to people by translating it into the Vulgate, meaning the common language of the people so that people could read the word by themselves, many of them gave their lives for that. And in some pretty awful ways, they became martyrs, Christian martyrs, to the Protestant Reformation, which was all a precursor to the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is in the details, brothers and sisters. It's not by chance that the gospel was restored here in the United States. That doesn't mean other countries aren't wonderful and full of great people. Because pretty is as pretty does. And we can sell our birthright for a mess of pottage at any moment, which is clearly happening in these latter days now. Nevertheless, you can see God's workings and appreciate them. If we pay a little attention to the detail, it just makes a stronger case for why we should judge God faithful, as we talked about last week, that we should trust him implicitly in all his works, in all his promises. He has never failed before. He always hits the mark. The plan unfurls as it should, as it should. The question is, will we embrace him as our God and King and align ourselves in covenant living with his gospel, with his spirit, that we might receive all that he has prepared for us? That's the question. Okay, this is a statement by Neil Maxwell made at a CES symposium back in 1991. So it's been a while, but I love this statement, wanted to share it today. We know of Joseph Smith's special experience in reading James 1.5. And let's just take a moment and read it, of course. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And this is a nice segue to what we spoke about last week in Hebrews 11, that great speech on faith that is included in that chapter, because it talks about the parts that are ours, that we need to ask nothing wavering. We need to judge God faithful when we ask for his help and trust what he gives us. Anyway, I think that's beautiful. But here we go on with Neil Maxwell's wonderful statement. Elder Maxwell says, quoting the prophet, Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. And this is from Joseph Smith History. James was inspired to so write, and Joseph to so respond to such words. Others have benefited and will continue to benefit from James 1.5. But its primary purpose 
was to be part of the spiritual awakening leading to the last dispensation. That's a powerful statement. I hope you enjoy that as much as I do. Look at this. All of us can benefit from James 1.5. But its primary purpose was to be part of the spiritual awakening leading to the last dispensation. These words were written for Joseph Smith. Again, who, who would dare bet against a God who is in the details at such an extraordinary level? I also wanted to share today on this verse some thoughts by a woman named Mary Lynn Todd Linford, who wrote an article for the Meridian Online Magazine in February of 2020. And she makes some nice points that I'd like to discuss a little bit. This is quoting from her article. In his 15th year, Joseph Smith's mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. He listened to Presbyterians, Baptists, and Methodists preach. They were equally zealous in endeavoring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. Joseph said the cry and tumult were so incessant that it was impossible for a person young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. And again, that's quoting from Joseph Smith history. Continuing from the history, while I was laboring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contests of these parties of religionists, I was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter and fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. These words changed everything for Joseph and for every person who has or will live on earth. And why is that? Because this is the dispensation of time in which temples are dotting the land. So exciting when we hear the announcements of all these new temples. It's extraordinary where we're building temples. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a marvelous work. And this is why this is the dispensation of the fullness of times. Because all the generations of the history of mankind can be welded together through temple work, through the sealing powers, that welding link that can help us then present an offering in righteousness. The sons of Levi will offer an offering in righteousness to the Lord when he comes. And what is it? It's going to be the book of our genealogy, our family history and temple work, that we commence this work, it will be finished during the millennium, so that everyone will have access to these saving doctrines and the saving ordinances that are required by the plan of God to enter into his kingdom at any level. There will be temple work required for those going into the celestial kingdom. They will not access the higher levels, but to be a part of the family of Adam and Eve, yes. So anyway, all this work must be done, and this has changed everything for every person who has or will or is currently now living on the earth. Now, she mentions that her husband pointed out the formula of this verse, and this is the formula as they discussed it. If any of you lack fill-in-the-blank... Let him or her ask of God. So if any of you lack anything, and she mentions, you know, we might want to put in any attribute that we are hoping to strengthen. For instance, faith. Do we lack faith? Do we lack hope? Or if any of us lack charity or love or virtue of some kind or knowledge, do we lack knowledge? Do we lack patience or temperance? Or do we lack brotherly kindness? How about any kind of godliness or humility. Do we lack humility or diligence? Whatever the characteristic is or the personality trait that we would like to develop, if we lack it, let us ask of God. And then, later on, Sister Linford adds, It surprises me, though, that James chapter 1, verse 5 is about wisdom because patience is the topic of the two preceding verses. And that is... Pretty interesting when you think about it. The trying of your faith work with patience is at the end of verse 3. And let patience have her perfect work in verse 4. So she suggests that it seems logical that the next verse would continue. Therefore, if any of you lack patience, because that's what James has been talking about. And he uses that connector, therefore. But James, under the inspiration of heaven, used the word wisdom 
because that is what Joseph Smith needed and desired. And then she adds her thoughts to the same thought expressed by Neil Maxwell. I think these 11 words were written specifically to and for Joseph Smith. He wrote in his history, never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man. We've read this, but this is very personal. This scripture seems to have been personally written by James to Joseph Smith through the conduit of the Holy Ghost. Later, Sister Linford adds, James teaches two important facts about what to expect after you ask of God. First, your part of the formula is not finished when you get up off your knees. The Bible dictionary says prayer is a form of work. Receiving desired blessings is most often a process rather than an event. Now, that's a really good statement that receiving desired blessings or, you know, in some respects, are the answers to our prayers is a process rather than an event. So things unfold in God's timing, not in our timing. That's why we do need the patience, right? But when we think about in due season or in due time, those phrases that my mother used to always remind me meant not as soon as you want. That when the time is right, the process happens and the blessings that are promised come or the answers that are desired come. So prayer is this part of work. James adds in chapter two that we'll look at in a little bit. Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Second, though you may ask in faith, nothing wavering. God in his omnipotence knows if your request is right for you. The purpose of prayer is to align your human desire with God's will that you not ask in vain. And that is also something talked about in the Bible dictionary that I really have appreciated, that the prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, it's to bend my will to his. Prayer can bridge the gap. It can help me yield in humility to God's superior will, to his superior knowledge and intelligence and that he knows the end from the beginning, and to bow before that in accepting his will over my own. So, going on with Sister Linford here, James said, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. And this is from James 4, verse 3. The meaning of amiss is given in the rest of the sentence, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Asking for wisdom or any other virtue will be withheld if your motive is immoral, prideful, or self-serving. Now, I think a lot of us, you know, we're talking about asking for good things here. So most of us aren't asking for a million dollars so that we can just go blow it. Or we're not asking for, you know, fame and glory or whatever so that we can preen around and just have instant gratification through our lives. Let's hope that we're past that. Now, some of our children may not be, so this might be a good discussion to have. And it can, of course, afflict us at any age. So it's not just children who need the reminder occasionally that we not ask amiss and that we examine that. What is the motive behind this? Am I doing this to build the kingdom? Is it because I want to conform more to the image of Jesus Christ? Or do I just want to be really good at this so that I can be better than my neighbor at it? (laughs) Or am I just trying to, you know, define... uh, this as sort of the hallmark of my success. I guess what I'm thinking about right then is I've spoken to people sometimes who really struggle with some talents that they don't have. And they feel like, you know, if they were good people that they would be able to do fill in the blank, you know, give a really good speech or give a great lesson or, you know, be good at music, whatever it is. And often those things came from our developing years, or it could come along the way that somebody made a statement about something that pierced us and landed on a wound. And so we start to feel like, well, if I can't do this, I'm inadequate. But that's not really accurate. Let's take, for instance, the giving of a public speech or a lesson in church. Moses called himself slow of speech, and God provided Aaron, a spokesperson. Enoch also called himself slow of speech, but a lad, and people made fun of him. So it wasn't incumbent on them to develop every talent. We have, you know, diverse gifts in the church, and one has one and one has another, so that we can all contribute together. So sometimes we ask for something that the Lord doesn't need to give us. He didn't change Moses so that Moses became a great orator, that all of a sudden he was articulate and golden-tongued. No, he provided Aaron and worked that way for Moses to accomplish 
Moses's mission given by God. So I think it's important that we realize that sometimes the Lord isn't going to answer those questions, not because they're, you know, trying to be focused on the natural man or lust, but because God has another way that helps us to be interdependent in the church and to bless each other's lives and to help and work with the fellow travelers in the journey so that together we can build the kingdom, not all with the same gift, but in our diverse gifts. I think that's important that we look at why our prayers are not being answered the way that we thought they would and realize if we think it's because God is failing us, that's never correct. God does not fail his people, period, full stop. He never fails. He always keeps his promise. It could be a timing issue, or it could be that we're asking amiss. And again, not necessarily because our desire is unrighteous, but because it's not what the Lord has in mind for us. I think I may have shared this before, but this was a life-changing experience for me when I was praying about a project that I was trying to get going that would provide me with a little income by working from home when my kids were in school. So I was starting to look into this just as my youngest was in kindergarten because I thought, boy, if I could get this in place and then I could stay home because I loved being a full-time mom and I wanted to be there still for the kids when they came home from school as they got older. But I was praying and praying and doing all the things I needed to do to try to make this project come to fruition. And I just kept hitting all these brick walls and I remember finally changing my prayers and saying, okay, Lord, why hasn't this worked? This was a righteous desire. I'm not trying to do this for any ill purpose. I want to be able to bless my family. We have a bunch of kids and they're going to start college in a few years and they'll have missions. If they choose to serve, they'll have weddings. And this would be a great thing to supplement my husband's solo income so that we could help take care of our family. And I just kept hitting this wall. And when I asked a different question, the heavens opened and I got a powerful revelation that sent me back to school. I don't want to go into the details of that at this point, but it was one of the most life-changing experiences of my life. And it came because I asked the Lord why my prayer wasn't being answered. And he was able to give me what he really wanted to give me, which was different from what I was asking for. I kept asking, let this work, let this work, let this work. And when it wasn't working, I finally felt thankfully inspired to say, tell me why. Why is this not working since it's a righteous desire? There have been other times, not too many, but another time in my life that I kept hitting a brick wall. And again, it was not an unrighteous desire. It was a very logical, righteous next step to take, but I kept hitting a brick wall in some pretty big ways. And of course, it's never fun to hit those brick walls. (laughs) It's rather painful. You get kind of bruised in the process. But again, I kind of turned to the Lord and said, help me know. Help me know that I'm still right before you because I don't understand. And it turned me another way. And when I went that other way, the road opened up. And it took a long time in that case to see how this new road to pursue was so much more of a blessing than the other righteously intended road would have been. I hope you could follow that because I got a little bit convoluted maybe in explaining that, but it really was a matter of not because I was trying to ask for something unrighteous, but it was not something in keeping with his will and my will needed to bend to his and being willing to do that was a huge blessing because (laughs) when he did show me that this was not the path that was going to open up. My turning into these other paths changed my life in ways that have blessed me and my family and hopefully others too along the journey. But what a great insight about looking to see, is my faith there? And then if it is, and I don't receive the answer I'm hoping for, It could be that I'm asking amiss. Again, it doesn't have to be unrighteous, although it could be, but it doesn't have to be. It could be just that we're not going the direction that the Lord has in mind for us. And as we yield to that, his hand can be in our lives. He can truly guide and guard our feet and direct our steps in ways that we would never have thought of ourselves. So... Sister Linford continues later on in her article, I'm skipping quite a bit. It is miraculous to me that Joseph Smith at age 14 found these world-changing 11 words. 
It wasn't an easy find. The Bible has 783,137 words. That's over three quarters of a million words that exist in the Bible. But this is what happened. In Joseph Smith's own words from his history, I was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter and fifth verse. It's miraculous to me, says Sister Linford, that Joseph's home life included diverse religious opinions and that the children sought for truth on their own. His father joined the Universalist Society and his mother and three of his siblings joined the Presbyterian Church. Their views on salvation were polar opposites. Universalists believe everyone can be saved. Presbyterians believe in predestination meaning that God decides in advance that eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. And she concludes, It is miraculous to me that Joseph at 14 was interested in community religious revivals and miraculous that he would conclude that I must either remain in darkness and confusion or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. So I think that's a beautiful summary of some of her insights on this marvelous, world-changing verse. Now, I want to talk a little bit about James chapter 2, starting with verses 14 and going to 20. This is another very familiar message of the book of James. What did it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? In other words, if someone comes to our door and they're naked or starving, and we say, Oh, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but we haven't done anything for them, then what do we think is going to happen? There's not going to be any benefit to them, right? Verse 17, Even so faith if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Shew me thy faith without thy works, and I will shew thee my faith by my works. And that's a very often quoted verse, right? Now, this is a contest that we seem to have in the Christian world between faith and works. And most of the Christian world would say that it is faith in Christ that saves us, and that it's not about works because it's by grace that we're saved, right? Well, let's just read the next couple of verses and then talk about that. Verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So, again, faith without doing something about it, James is suggesting, is not worth much, if anything at all. And then in verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then he goes on and talks about Abraham was justified by works and made perfect and all of this kind of thing. And So it is by works a man is justified in verse 24 and not by faith only. And he talks about Rahab, etc. as another example of that. However, I'm going to give another side to that, which is not to argue with James, because I love this chapter in James. I've quoted it often. I've thought about it often. Because clearly, he gives us the words, be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. This is coming right from James in chapter 1, verse 22, right? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Because if we just hear and don't do anything about it, we are letting ourselves deceive ourselves. Because we're acting like we know something that we won't incorporate into our lives. So what good is that? It doesn't accomplish anything. Again, same message, right? But the way I've come to think about this as my life has continued has been a little broader, perhaps, I hope, for sure I hope, because brothers and sisters, I really have come to understand that in my youth, I kind of spurned the idea of grace. I mean, I was just a diligent little girl, you know, who tried to be good, not saying I was perfect at it, but I was pretty compliant, tried to be a good person, and that I I thought that doing those right things that the church teaches the gospel teaches that are in scripture, you know, be honest and fair. I mean, the Ten Commandments, do unto others as you would have others do unto them, the golden rule, you know, all these things have a lot of action involved. And then the requirement to be obedient, right? To obey, that's action. 
to harness the natural man is action. It's doing something. It's works. Now, works are clearly a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as I grew older, I started to realize how much I had misunderstood about the power of grace and that Christ's atonement is so universal and powerful that it truly is by grace that we are saved. And not works, lest any man should boast. We don't save ourselves. Christ saves us. If we put ourselves in his path, he can raise us even to his own stature as joint heirs with him, which again blows my mind. So what's the combination? I think it's this. I think it's that we must give God and Christ and the great merciful plan all the credit for salvation. It is because of Jesus Christ that we are saved, if that's what we choose. And if we choose Christ, then just like miracles follow faith, so do good works follow belief in Christ. I don't think that we can truly say that we have faith in Christ or belief in his power to save us and not bring forth good fruits. Or we are, as James warned earlier, that we're hearers of the word only, but not doers. And that doesn't work. We are deceiving ourselves. We're not going to deceive God. And remember that when Christ talks about who he will confess in the last day and who he will reject, he usually uses phrases like this, you know, depart from me, ye who work iniquity. I never knew you. But in the Book of Mormon, there's a place where that is changed to indicate that a more accurate way to say that would not be, I never knew you, but you never knew me. That we can do certain observances and miss the whole boat. We could pay tithing. We could be generous in our offerings and in our service. And yet, if we don't yield our hearts to the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost through seeking that Christ-like path, that covenant path that leads us to Christ, then the works alone cannot save us. No matter how much we can list a resume of callings or offerings or volunteer work or whatever it is that we think is qualifying for us, if we don't conform to gospel life, meaning, well, ultimately the way we treat other people, then we're not real believers. That's a strong statement, but I hope you'll think about it and ponder it and pray about it. Are we truly believers in the fullest sense? Now, is there a stage thing here going on? Could we be at an initial level and then grow to a next level and keep growing? Yes, I think we can. Of course we can. Nobody gets it first shot out of the box. But I think we really need to recognize that, like, what is the fruit of my belief? And if it doesn't manifest itself in positive Christian living, then... I am involved in some self-deception. I can say I believe, but I'm not acting like a believer. So I really do think that our works grow out of our faith. And it's not about a checklist. It's about becoming. President Oaks spoke again about this topic in conference, and he has spoken about it before. And the reason I recognize some of what he was saying from a previous speech of his is because I have PowerPoint slides on it. So I remember when he said something about, you know, that the judgment day isn't about you know, some sort of celestial or heavenly bank account where we make enough deposits and we can be saved. I'm paraphrasing horribly. But it's about what we have become, the sum total of what we have become. So have we become Christian through our belief in Christ? Then that would be a manifestation of his grace that I used that incredible transformative power of the atonement of Jesus Christ in order to become conformed to the image of God's Son. I became more like him so that when he comes, he shall know us because we are like him and we will know him because we are like him. 
That's the miracle for me. Belief is manifest in works. Otherwise, it's not complete belief or it's not mature belief or developed belief. It could be an initial belief, but unless we exercise faith on that belief by changing, by becoming more Christian in our lives, in our relationships, emphasis on relationships. If we are not becoming better Christians in our relationships, then our faith is insufficient. Our belief is insufficient. It needs to change us. Again, we need to tap into that miraculous, transformative power that exists in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that I can, as Paul talked about just recently, I can let go of the old man of sin and embrace the new child of Christ in him that is born of God and of the Spirit. Okay, I'm spending a lot of time on this, but it's such an important point to me. And I was reminded of another part of The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Remember just a few weeks ago, I gave that story of how she struggled to forgive one of the SS guards that was at the camp where her sister was killed. And she gave that beautiful story of how when she turned it over to Christ, Christ was able to help her complete that path of forgiveness, even for someone who had done such personal harm to her and her beloved sister. Well, very early in the book, The Hiding Place, there's this little story before the war hits, before the Nazis, before they start their amazing Christian work of helping to save Jewish children. Corey is describing her life as a young person in her family. You know, her mother had died when she was quite young, but they had a couple of aunts that lived with them for a while. And one of them was named Jans. I don't know if that's the Dutch pronunciation, so forgive me. But anyway, Tant Jans was the name of this aunt that she is talking about early in the story. And she says that her aunt had a certain illness and the doctor had shown them how they could run this test every Friday and it had to be some solution that was cooked over the stove. And if it turned black, that would indicate that the illness had progressed to the point that Tant John's life was going to end soon. And Corey had the responsibility to do that little test on the stove every Friday. So after doing it for a very long time, one Friday, the solution turned black and she took it to her father. And then they went to the doctor and the doctor confirmed this, that the aunt had three weeks left to live at most, according to the doctor. So then the family, other than the aunt got together and uh, consulted about this sad news. And then they agreed. I guess her mother was still alive at this time. So sorry, I'm getting the timing wrong. But her mother was in that little meeting with Betsy and the father and the other aunt, Anna. And they agreed that they should let Tant John's know right away. And the father suggested, let's just all go together and I will speak the necessary words. Perhaps, he said, his face brightening, perhaps she will take heart from all she has accomplished. She puts great store on accomplishment, John's does. And who knows but that she's right. So our little procession filed up the steps and went to her rooms. Come in, she called and added, as she always did, and closed the door before I catch my death of drafts. She was sitting at her round mahogany table working on yet another appeal for her soldiers' center. So she was involved in a lot of volunteer work for good causes, right? As she saw the number of people entering the room, she laid down her pen. She looked from one face to another until she came to mine and gave a little gasp of comprehension. This was Friday morning, and I had not yet come up with the results of the test. My dear sister-in-law, father began gently, there is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And John's, some must go to their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. All your clubs, Tant Anna ventured. Your writings, Mama added. The funds you've raised, said Betsy. Your talks, I began. But our well-meant words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumpled. 
Tant Johns put her hands over her eyes and began to cry. Empty. Empty, she choked at last through her tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And then as we listened in disbelief, she lowered her hands and with tears still coursing down her face, whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. Brothers and sisters, I read that a long time ago, but I've never forgotten it because it was unexpected to me. I guess I was still at that time when I first read this, stuck a little bit into the works part of the equation or the balance. And this helped me see a different way that it is all Christ's doing that any of us can be saved. It is not our works that save us. It is our works that display our faith. And not in a way to compete or impress or compare, but just in a way to give glory to God. That all our good ideas, all our good actions come because of the light of Christ. We of ourselves are nothing, but through him we can be lifted to more heavenly stature, to celestial living, if that's what we choose, as we embrace celestial law, not again because it's an account where we make deposits or because it's a checklist that we have to complete, but because it's a way of demonstrating our love and faith and our acceptance of the grace of Christ, that this is the way we receive his grace, is by living a more Christian life by letting our light so shine before men that others seeing our good works will glorify God. That's the purpose of works. That's what James is talking about. And I think that it's so needful that we discuss this amongst ourselves with greater clarity and we not get caught into thinking that we earn the kingdom. Nobody earns the kingdom of God. Nobody could. We're sinners, and we all fall short. Without the Savior, we all go to hell. Just going to repeat that beautiful statement that the ant makes. Well, first I'm going to go back, because I thought that was also a humbling statement she makes with great insight. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? I don't mean to diminish the efforts that good people make because I'm glad and I benefit myself from seeing so many good works around me and around us and in the world. It's wonderful to see people who desire to live Christian lives and they bring forth the fruits of Christian living. That's what our works are. They are the fruits of Christian living, of the fruits of our testimony and witness of Jesus Christ. That is a growing, growing testimony until that perfect day where we can see him face to face. So she says this so beautifully. How can we bring anything to God? And then, dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. We do need to come to know our Savior so that we will never be amongst those to whom Christ will say, yes, I've seen your mighty works and your whatever, whatever. I've seen you raise the dead or, you know, cast out devils or do all these works. But I never knew you or worse, you never knew me. Because, of course, he knows us. But if we don't come to know him and believe in him and believe him, We have not completed the course. And yes, the fruits of Christian living will be evident in our lives, but not because we earn our way into the kingdom, but because we celebrate our way into the kingdom by sharing the light we have with others, by 
being warned and warning our neighbors by loving our neighbors after we have established our love for God. And that doesn't have to be strictly sequential, you know that. But as we come to love God more, we see our love being manifest for our neighbors as well. Last message I want to talk about from James. And boy, we could talk about James for a very long time because this, these five little chapters are jam-packed with beautiful statements, which I hope you will read, ponder, and enjoy. But I'm going to land on this. This is from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's speech, The Tongue of Angels, given in conference April of 2007. Now, it's a talk I've never forgotten. I often have asked clients to read this one and Elder Marvin Ashton's speech called The Tongue Can Be a Sharp Sword from April of 1992. They're wonderful to read together. They're wonderful to discuss together and review often because this powerful message of James about how we speak to one another is so important. Let me just quote some things from Elder Holland's wonderful speech. The prophet Joseph Smith deepened our understanding of the power of speech when he taught, it is by words that every being works when he works by faith. That's a really great statement. It is by words with a D, it is by words that every being works with a K when he works by faith. God said, let there be light and there was light. Joshua spake and the great lights which God had created stood still. Elijah commanded and the heavens were stayed for the space of three years and six months so that it did not rain. All this was done by faith. Faith then, and this is Joseph Smith speaking still, faith then works by words, and with words its mightiest works have been and will be performed. I love that. I'm somebody who keys on words. I love good language. I love good vocabulary. And I think good thinking, I've talked about this before, that one of the great tools to become a good critical thinker is to write, because writing is a tool for thinking. It's a great detox tool. We've talked about that, but it's also a great tool for thinking and understanding things. So the power of words is important. As a clinician, I listen to people's words. Now, I've also talked about not making someone an offender for a word, which is also incredibly important to not take one phrase that somebody might have spoken in the moment of strong emotion and beat them up with it forever. But you said this once, but you said that. I'll never forgive you. I'll never forget. That's not what we're talking about here, but we are trying to strike a balance between not making people an offender for a word. Nevertheless, it's noting the words that we speak or that others speak so that we can better understand and that we can better come to a place of communion of our thoughts and become ultimately one in our marriages and one with Christ. Okay, words are important is what he's saying here, and I love this. Like all gifts which cometh from above, now this is Elder Holland speaking, Words are sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. Said James, and now he's going to quote from James chapter, let's make sure I'm checking which chapter this is. Chapter 3. Said James, for in many things we offend all. But if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body. Continuing the imagery of the bridle, James writes, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also ships, which though they be great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm. Then James makes his point, The tongue is also a little member. But behold, how great a forest a little fire can burn. So is the tongue of fire among our members. It defileth the whole body. It is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and serpents and of things in the sea hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith we bless, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. 
My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Well, that is pretty straightforward, says Elder Holland. Obviously, James doesn't mean our tongues are always iniquitous, nor that everything we say is full of deadly poison. But he clearly means that at least some things we say can be destructive, even venomous, and that is a chilling indictment for a Latter-day Saint. The voice that bears profound testimony, utters fervent prayer, and sings the hymns of Zion can be the same voice that berates and criticizes, embarrasses and demeans, inflicts pain and destroys the spirit of oneself and of others in the process. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, James grieves. My brethren and sisters, these things ought not so to be. Later, Elder Holland addresses husbands and says this, Husbands, you have been entrusted with the most sacred gift God can give you, a wife, a daughter of God, the mother of your children, who has voluntarily given herself to you for love and joyful companionship. Think of the kind things you said when you were courting. Think of the blessings you have given with hands placed lovingly upon her head. Think of yourself and of her as the God and goddess you both inherently are, and then reflect on other moments characterized by cold, caustic, unbridled words. Given the damage that can be done with our tongues, little wonder, the Savior said, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man." A husband who would never dream of striking his wife physically can break, if not her bones, then certainly her heart, by the brutality of thoughtless or unkind speech. Physical abuse is uniformly and unequivocally condemned in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If it is possible to be more condemning than that, we speak even more vigorously against all forms of sexual abuse. Today, I speak against verbal and emotional abuse of anyone against anyone, but especially of husbands against wives. Brethren, these things ought not to be. And later, he speaks to the sisters. In that same spirit, we speak to the sisters as well, for the sin of verbal abuse knows no gender. Wives, what of the unbridled tongue in your mouth? Of the power for good or ill in your words? How is it that such a lovely voice, which by divine nature is so angelic, so close to the veil, so instinctively gentle and inherently kind, could ever in a turn be so shrill so biting, so acrid and untamed. A woman's words can be more piercing than any dagger ever forged, and they can drive the people they love to retreat beyond a barrier more distant than anyone in the beginning of that exchange could ever have imagined. Sisters, there's no place in that magnificent spirit of yours for acerbic or abrasive expression of any kind, including gossip, or backbiting, or catty remarks. Let it never be said of our home, or our ward, or our neighborhood, that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity burning among our members. Elder Holland then goes on and talks about being kind with our children, which I will not quote, but wholeheartedly endorse. Not too many weeks ago, I saw a headline, just a headline, I didn't have a chance to read the article, that was about how parents' anger and the words they say can do real damage to their children's development. <laughs> I'm like, you think? You think? I mean, this is a message I've been trying to give my whole adult life, that we can do so much damage to people through the words that we speak. And our children are so incredibly vulnerable because they think we know stuff. And if we tell them they're terrible, they are inclined to believe it. This is a terrible thing to do to children. Now, if we've done it, let's correct it. Let's go back and own our entire responsibility for it and take it all back and replace it. Try to make restitution by replacing those hurtful, harmful words with kind words. Now, it can't just be fluff and it can't just be 
all said at once. It has to be over a period of time to reverse the damage we've done, but we can do it. We can do that if we set our minds to it and pray for God's help and the enabling power of the atonement. We can repair damage that we have done, but we must be intentional about it. We can't just think about it. We have to do it. There do have to be works of restitution involved in trying to repair relationships. Please do it. Now, I do want to mention that so many words can bring about so much ugliness. Don't want to dwell on this too long, but... I was thinking about how Christ says that whoever hateth his brother hath committed murder already in his heart. And that verse came to my mind very strongly when in the news this past week, that is the ongoing news about the war in Israel, one video showed cartoons that are on TVs that are shown on channels to Palestinian children. And those cartoons teach them to hate Jews and teach them that you can be mean to Jews and hurt Jews and celebrate the killing of Jews. I mean, it's awful. This indoctrination of young children who come without that kind of hatred in their hearts, but then it's placed in them very young. And that kind of hatred does end up leading to murder. You can see how it's on the same spectrum as Christ taught so purely Another thing that that reminded me of that was so sad was a song from the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, South Pacific. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's about a military group that are in there, some nurses, as well as some soldiers that are stationed in the South Pacific, and some relationships that form. One young captain kind of falls in love with a Polynesian girl, but he can't bring himself to commit to her because she's a different color. She's a different race than he is. And then there's a nurse. The main character of the show is Nellie. And she becomes attached to this Frenchman who lives there in the South Pacific and has a plantation. But his first wife, who is deceased, was a Polynesian woman. And so he has two mixed race children that have a Polynesian look. And when Nellie meets them, she is afraid of continuing in her relationship with this Frenchman because she's not sure she could love those children completely. So the two of them have a conversation. Nellie and Lieutenant Cable, the young soldier, have a conversation. They end up singing a song together that's a bitter commentary on racism and talking about how he and Nellie were raised to feel that way. So here are the words, part of the words to that song in the musical South Pacific. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are differently made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. Now, here's my social worker pitch. We are not going to help our children to avoid hatred if we hate or if we fear. That said, we need to talk them through their feelings. I've mentioned this before, but it's been a long time, that when we lived in Chicago, they bust kids to some of the different schools in the suburbs, right? So we had some inner city kids that came to one of the neighborhood schools where our children were. And my oldest son was only about six years old. And he came home from school one day and he said, I hate black kids. And I was horrified. I was horrified. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? How did how did he become a racist? Like he didn't learn that from us. How did how did this happen? But instead of freaking out and instead of telling him you can't feel that way, because that's our inclination sometimes, brothers and sisters, we just want to put out the fire and we just want to like stamp down on it. So we just deny the feeling and we don't even find out what's behind it. But now thankfully I had a good mother who had taught me better than that. So instead I said, well, without freaking out, I said, well, tell me about that. Where's that coming from? What are you thinking? And why is that? And so he told me that there were black kids. They happened to be kids that were being bused from the inner city to the suburban school. 
And they were misbehaving on the playground. They were being hurtful. They were stealing toys. They were, you know, pushing people around a little bit or whatever. And so Adam had some bad experience with kids who had dark skin. And he came home and he announces this to me. But because I listened to where it was coming from, I could have a conversation with him about culture. Now, you don't have to use that word, but having been raised by sociologists and cultural anthropologists, that word was available to me quite easily. But I did want to talk to him about culture. And I said, oh, you're not talking about skin color. You're talking about the way people are raised sometimes. And in this case, it happens to align with a different skin color. But I pointed out to him that he knew white kids that were also bullies on the playground. And we thought about that for a minute. And sure enough, he said, well, that's true. There are some of these kids. And I said, and if you watch, you're going to see that there are some black kids that don't treat people like that. Maybe the most obviously noticeable ones do. But if you pay attention, you'll find that not all kids of a certain skin color behave the same way. And that this has much more to do with how they are taught, how they're raised, what culture they are raised in, than it does with skin color. So... We could change from a racist orientation, which was, let me just point out, brothers and sisters, in a way, that's not prejudiced, which is prejudgment, but it's post-judice. It was a judgment made after some unfortunate experiences with people who were different from him. But as we talked about it, we could explain that those differences were cultural, not racial, and that there are good people and bad people of every color stripe race, creed, you know, religion, and that we need to look at the content. This is a Martin Luther King statement, right? That we need to judge people on the content of their character, not where they're from or what they look like. So we can do that if we listen. And instead of trying to shut down when our kids say, I hate somebody, let's detox it. Let's let them talk and explain. We validate their experience, but help them to think critically. Again, not in a criticism way, but to think well, to evaluate, to understand what's really behind their experience so that they can make a good conclusion and not get caught in a path of hatred or fear. Well, let's finish with this wonderful statement by Elder Holland. Our words, like our deeds, should be filled with faith and hope and charity. The three great Christian imperatives so desperately needed in the world today. With such words spoken under the influence of the Spirit. Tears can be dried, hearts can be healed, lives can be elevated, hope can return, and confidence can prevail. Another way to choose glory, another way to live a higher and holier, more celestial law that we might qualify for building Zion and becoming worthy of that glory. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We have all we need. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>